Bless your word to our understanding, our comprehension today, Heavenly Father. And in asking that, I am asking you to grant every one of us here now to be gripped with its power, its force, its application to us as individuals. And in so doing, Father, I pray that you will exalt the worth and the majesty of Jesus Christ to every last one of us. In Jesus' holy name, amen. This chapter, Matthew chapter 13, is a chapter containing the parables of the mysteries of the kingdom. And in learning these parables of the mysteries of the kingdom, we're learning a lot about this age, about what God's plan and intent is in the age between the first coming of Jesus Christ and the return of Jesus Christ. Uh, With the Jews' rejection of Jesus, the kingdom has not broken in in instant judgment and instant transformation of the world, as prophesied. Uh, With the Jews' rejection of Jesus, the coming of the kingdom has been postponed until his return. This age, we're learning in Matthew 13, is an age of the preaching of the word of God to various kinds of people. The sowing of the word of God. The holding up of Jesus Christ by the word of God. It's an age where evil and righteous people grow up together indistinguishable from each other that is scattered among each other. It's an age where some are discovering the worth of Jesus Christ and they're finding he's worth more than everything they have and they gladly with joy leave what they have that they might have Christ. But what of those who do not? What of those who hear Jesus preached but see no great worth, see no great preciousness, see no great value in him? and would rather keep what they have. What is the end for those people? And what is the end of this age? That's where Jesus focuses in this parable, the parable of the dragnet, or as I call it, one fish, two fish. So let's first uh, together join in simply seeing the parable, Roman numeral one in your outline, seeing the parable. Uh, Let me read... um, the translation I've given you in your outline of this set of three parables. Verse 44, The kingdom of the heavens is like treasure hidden in the field, which a man found and hid. And because of his joy, he goes away and sells all things, as many as he has, and buys that field. And then Jesus says again, which is as as much to say secondly, because this is a set of three. The kingdom of the heavens is like a man who was a merchant seeking good pearls. And when he had found one very valuable pearl, he went away and sold, all, sold off all things, as many as he had, and bought it. Again, which is to say, thirdly, again, the kingdom of the heavens is like a dragnet that was cast into the sea and gathered together from every kind, which when it was filled, they pulled up on the shore and sat down and collected the good fish into containers, but the foul fish they threw out. Thus will it be at the consummation of the age, Jesus says. The angels will come and will separate the wicked out of the midst of the righteous, and they will throw them into the furnace of fire. There there will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Well, this is a set of three parables. It's easy to see that the first and the second are about worth, 
which makes us think that the third will be two, but that may not be immediately apparent, but it will become apparent as we look at it. So let's, let's first have a talk-through, letter A, a talk-through about the bigger picture and the shape of Matthew 13 as a whole. Because really, to understand each parable, we need to understand the shape of the whole chapter, because it all teaches us. So what do we have in the chapter? And I'm sorry for people who are just hearing, uh, hearing the recording of this uh, uh, sermon. Uh, because the gestures are going to help, I think. So in, in, how many parables do we have in this chapter? There are eight parables. And the first and the eighth parable act as a frame. The parable of the sower in the soils, of three who hear the word of God but don't receive it and don't bear fruit, and one that receives it and bears fruit. And then the eighth parable, which is about the one who does receive it, the disciple who is taught as to the kingdom of God. The in between these two framing parables at the start and the end of the chapter, we've got two sets of three parables each. And they're each a set. They, all have the, they each have the same theme within them, framed by those two parables. Uh, the first set, verses 24 through 33, are all about growth. They're about the wheat and the darnel. They're about the leaven. They're about the mustard seed. Easy to see, the theme of all three of those is growth. And we've already talked about those. Uh, the second set of three is all about worth, verses 44 through 50. Uh, the worth of the treasure hidden in the field, the worth of the, the priceless pearl, and we'll see the same about worth in this parable as well. So that's the larger picture. The larger picture is eight parables, first and last frame, two sets of three. We're now studying the third parable of the second set of three. So this is the last parable of the two sets in the middle. Let's talk then about the immediate picture and shape. And by the way, as to what I just said, if, if you friended me on Facebook, you saw a, a, a diagram I put up yesterday showing uh, the shape and how these things fit together. You might take a look at that. Now let's talk about the immediate picture and shape of this parable, the parable of the dragnet, as it's called. This parable, uh, look here, this parable is very parallel. What did I say in the middle? There are two sets of three. So this last of the second set is very parallel to the first of the first set. They're both longer than the ones in the middle, and they both parallel each other very much. They're very similar, and yet there are significant differences about that, which I, I'm about to talk with uh, you about. So let's uh, talk about how, they, how they're similar and how they're different. How are they similar? Well, what does the parable of the wheat and the darnel tell? It tells of a, a man who owns a field, and he sows wheat in his field, and then an enemy comes in and sows darnel, which is sort of a, a poisonous imitation wheat seed. looks just like the wheat until it comes to harvest, and then it's poisonous, and it's, it's useless, and it's actually harmful, and, and uh, can kill people, as a matter of fact, if they eat it. So uh, with this, the, the, as soon as the slaves see that... that bad seed's been sown, they say, well, should we just pluck it all up? And the man says, no, no, let them all grow together, and then in the harvest, harvest them all and part off the darnel and burn it and save the wheat into my barn. And Jesus explains, well, that's like this age. In this age, the field is the world. He's not talking about the church. And in the world, 
the sons of the wicked one and the sons of God grow up together in the world. And it's not our job to go out seeking unbelievers and rooting them up. It's our job to evangelize them, as a matter of fact, but that's beyond the parable. Not our job to try to root them up. He says God will do that at the end of the age. The angels will be sent out, and they'll root them up. And so, very similarly, the parable of the dragnet says that a huge dragnet is cast out into the sea, and it brings all sorts of fish. And then, like the wheat and the darnel, the good and the worthless fish are parted. And the good are put into containers, and the worthless fish are cast off. And in both parables, he says that uh, the wicked will go off into the furnace of fire where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And he says that the worthless fish, the men who are represented by the worthless fish, they'll be cast into the furnace of fire where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Exactly the same words. So you see those two parables are very, very similar to each other. But there are some very important differences between the two as well. The stress of the parable of the wheat and the darnel is the process of this age. That throughout this age, there will be a mixture of children of God and children of the wicked one growing together. And the only person who's going to end up being able to to part those and send them off to their rewards is God. In the parable of the dragnet, there's no stress on the process at all. There's just all these fish gathered up and parted. There's nothing about the fishies swimming through the sea, the lake, and their happy little life or anything about that. There's nothing about the process. It's simply the a focus on the end process. What in the, the wheat and the darnel is the harvest, and the dragnet is pulling the net out. So this is about progress of this age. This is about the end of this age. Do you see that? This is about the end of this age. When I say this, I mean the parable of the dragnet. And in the parable of the wheat and the darnel, you have a word about the destiny of each of the two kinds, that the men represented by the darnel will be cast off into a furnace of fire. But he says in verse 43, the righteous, the children of God, will shine forever as the stars in the kingdom of their father. So he speaks about both of their destiny. However, In the parable of the dragnet, he only speaks about the wicked, the worthless. He says nothing in that parable about the righteous. He's just talking about the how how the person who is categorized as wicked or as worthless in this parable ends up spending his eternity, which is suffering under the wrath of God. So the purpose of the wheat and darnel is to show the process of this age. The purpose of the dragnet is to show the judgment at the end of this age and the criterion for judgment. So you see how how they're similar, but you see how they're different. And you see how fitting it is that the dragnet be the last of the two sets of three because it focuses on the end of this age. How will this age end? What will be the future of those who don't Uh, find Jesus in this age, and Jesus answers that question. He answers what will be the end of this mystery period. So there's just a general talk through. It's very important to get that shape and that feel for this whole section. Now let's take a walk through of the parable itself, letter B. A walk through, and just taking the parts of the parable. The first action that we see is the action of gathering, verses 47 and 48a the action of gathering. Again, here's how I've translated it. He says, again, and that's his way of saying, secondly, 
He's setting, he's making this a set of three. That's very important to keep them together. Again, the kingdom of the heavens is like a dragnet that was cast into the sea and gathered together from every kind, which when it was filled, they pulled up on the shore. Dot, dot, dot. That's where we'll stop for now. So this is a dragnet. What's a dragnet? We've talked about fishing before. True. But we've talked about a different kind of fishing. When Jesus finds the, the men, uh, they're, they're casting a net into the sea. And that is a different kind of, of net fishing. Uh, that's a relatively small net. It's a round net. It's got weights all around it. And an individual can throw it out to catch fish. And it sinks. And you pull it back. And hopefully it envelops uh, a bunch of fish. Ronnie Russell uh, fishes with a, 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 such a net. I was very interested to find when we preached on that. But this is not that. A drag net is a different kind of net. It's an enormous net. It can be 600 feet long. And how it differs is it's got uh, wood or some kind of float at the top of the net, and it's got stones or metal or some kind of weight at the bottom of the net. And it could be that two boats would have different ends of it and would drag it through the water and then pull it up to encompass a great huge catch of fish. Or another way they do it is they would anchor one end of the net on the shore and then the other boat, uh, the only boat at the other end of the net, would drag the net, hence the name, across like a a half mile of space in a semi-circle. And in so doing, part of the net would be floating, part of the net would have sunk, and it would just basically catch up everything in the way, all kinds of fish as well as possibly uh, weeds and water plants and, and not Coke cans, I suppose, at the time, but whatever happened to be floating in the, in the lake. And then when they pulled that up, they would get all of the different things that they had caught. And so that's what a drag net is. It's a much larger, it's a, it's a huge, uh, I've seen film of it, just you can come up with dozens, hundreds of fish in such an operation, assuming they're there. Now notice how Jesus says this. It's like a dragnet that was cast into the sea, which now you understand, gathered together from every kind. Well, it's not it's not discriminating. You know, when I'm trout fishing, I, I use one kind of bait. When I'm deep sea fishing, I use a totally different kind of bait. Well, there's no bait here. There's just a net. And anything that is in its path, it catches up. And so notice that Jesus says, which when it was filled, they pulled up on the shore. Now, this is an important part of the parable because he will focus on this, on, on this part of the process. What's done when the net is filled? Now, this is not something to skip over because this is a note in prophecy that God's judgment has perfect timing and God's judgment falls at the right time. And if it hasn't fallen yet, then it's not the right time in God's eyes. He waits sometimes in great patience for iniquity to, iniquity to be filled, for people to be ripe for judgment, as we say. A number of scriptures point to this. I'll, I'll just point out a couple you probably know. Uh, Genesis 15, 16. Genesis 15, 16, where God is talking to Abram about how his children will go down to Egypt and be there for several centuries. In Genesis 15, 16, he says, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. So they had not yet come to the point where he meant to judge them, but, but in these generations they would. And that's when he brought the Israelites into Canaan, and, and that's part of understanding the judgment and the genocide, uh, the reason why there was such a slaughter. Their iniquity then was full 
It was complete. It was time for them to be judged. Paul says something similar in 1 Thessalonians 2.16. First was Genesis 15.16, now 1 Thessalonians 2.16, where Paul is talking about the persecution that he endures, that Christians endure from his own countrymen. He says, by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved, so as always to fill up the measure of their sins, but wrath has come upon them at last. God's judgment fell on them in 70 AD uh, for their resistance and their rejection of Christ and their attempts to muzzle the gospel. So that's the gathering, and the gathering represents, as Jesus will show us, the coming of the judgment of God on the people of this world. Gathering, secondly, we have the sorting, S-O-R-T-I-N-G, the sorting in verse 48b. So they pulled, it, they pulled the net up on the shore and sat down and collected the good fish into containers, but the foul fish they threw out. Now, the first uh, body of water that his hearers would picture, of course, would be the Sea of Galilee. And in the Sea of Galilee, there are more than 25 different kinds of fish swimming about. Uh, tilapia, bleak, barbell, catfish, although probably the Jews could not eat the catfish. Probably the uh, Gentiles ate the catfish. The gray mullet, but the, the most uh, common edible fish in the Sea of Galilee was tilapia, which you can get at uh, Houston restaurants as well, and I, I have done. But tilapia and 24 other kinds of fish or more uh, could be caught up in this net indiscriminately. And Jesus says they sort them. They collect the good fish in the containers, but the foul fish they threw out. Well, well, what are those two categories? Well, the good fish are edible fish, fish that are useful, the fish they're looking for. Now, this is not a small thing, and my uh, translation is wooden to reflect this. It's the same word that Jesus just used about the merchant looking for pearls. What was he looking for? Jesus says he's looking for good pearls. Same exact word, and there are several synonyms for good in Greek. But it's the same word used here. He's looking for good pearls. So in looking for good pearls, what was he looking for? Pearls he could sell. Pearls that that could be put on market. Pearls people wouldn't look at and say, I'm not going to buy that. You expect me to pay for that? I'm not going to buy that. I'm not interested. Now he's looking for good pearls. And so what are good fish? Well, it's not that they're pretty. It's not the particular thing about their size. It's that they're edible, that they're useful. If, if these are professional fishermen, that they can sell them. Well, and they probably are professional fishermen since they're using a dragnet. They can sell them at market. People can buy them. And so the opposite is foul fish. Meaning what? Well, bad pearls are useless pearls. They're worthless pearls. You can't do anything with them. They're not worth paying for. What are foul fish? They're worthless fish. They're useless fish. Specifically, inedible fish. There are inedible fish. I remember how excited I was once fishing Lake Crowley with my dad in a boat, and I got this heavy, heavy fish on and pulled it up, and it was a sucker. You couldn't tell from the top, but it was a bottom-dwelling garbage-eating sucker, and so it was not exciting to get. In fact, it was kind of startling. It looked like a mutated trout, (laughs) so it got thrown back. And so likewise, these are talking about foul fish, meaning useless fish, inedible, or, in this context, unclean. Because the law of Moses in the book of Leviticus 
11 verses 9 through 12 specified what kinds of fish can and cannot be eaten. They've got to have fins and scales. So catfish was suspect. Eels would not have been edible. Or if there were any crustaceans, they could not be edible. These were not in the category of of clean fish. So they'd be worthless. Let's talk about that word worthless then. It's, It's foul. It's corrupt. And you see how now this fits in this section. Because what is this section about? It's about what's worthwhible or worthless. What are the first two parables about? A man who passes by a field and sees a treasure in it. Is it worth something? He sees it's worth everything he has. With joy, he parts with everything he has for that treasure. And what does that treasure represent? Jesus Christ. I hope you're all saying Jesus Christ and everything it means to know him. And the second is a merchant looking for fine pearls, good pearls, and he finds one that is beyond price. And so he gladly sells everything he's got that he can have that one pearl. What does it represent? Just the same. Jesus Christ and all he's worth, all all that comes with him in knowing him. And so what do we have here? We have an interesting flip on that theme. What's worthless is... The fish. There's a worthless kind of fish. A fish that is not rich, that is not precious, that is not valuable, it's not useful. And so they would be thrown out, and they represent men who were judged. So, so this is a little sneak peek, we'll be talking about this more. So what, what's the meaning here? Well, keep it in context. Remember, this is a set of three parables. So the first parable talks about the priceless worth of Jesus and someone who would gladly part with everything just to have him. The second, very similar, the priceless worth of Jesus and a businessman who would gladly part with everything to have him. And what's the third? It's about the people who see no value in Jesus. They, to go back to the previous parables, they hear the word. Just like the first soil, second soil, third soil, they hear the word. The kingdom's growth touches them like like leaven, like the size of a mustard seed plant. They're among the righteous like the darnel are. But in hearing about Jesus, they don't see anything for them. They don't see anything compelling. They don't see why they need Jesus. Like people I've heard say again and again, I just really don't have any use for that. And by that, they mean religion, but I'm not talking about religion per se. I'm talking about Jesus. So that's what they mean. They see no particular use, no compelling need for Jesus. And so the man, in the, if I'm to, to stretch the first parable, they walk right past the treasure without turning aside. They walk right through the market without noticing the pearl beyond price. And they see no value in Jesus And they keep everything they've got. And so it turns out that what's worthless then is not Jesus. Because Jesus is precious. Jesus is who he is, no matter what anybody thinks of him. He is precious. All the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden in him. He is the way, the truth, the life. He is who he is. He's the Alpha and the Omega. He's the one and only Savior. He's the resurrection and the life. And if we see that, well then... That treasure is ours. And if we don't see it, and we have nothing to do with it, no great interest, does that mean that now he's worthless? Does that mean he's lost his worth? Is that what that means? No, it means we're showing that we're worthless. That we don't, what, what would you say about a, a merchant man who saw a pearl beyond price and just shrugged and moved on? You'd say he wasn't a very good businessman. Or a man who, who sees a treasure and just doesn't care and keeps walking. He doesn't have much sense of value, does he? 
And when a person sees Jesus Christ and hears him preach and finds nothing particularly compelling, no, no, no reason to change anything, no reason to inconvenience myself, let alone humble myself, let alone repent, well, he says something about himself. Because Jesus, as we saw last week, if you missed that, I'd encourage you to listen to it. Jesus is everything we need. And everything Jesus is, we need. And if we don't see that, it says something about us. Not one thing about Jesus. That's the point of this parable. So, now we come to number three, the parting and the judging, where Jesus talks about the meaning of that parable, the parting and the judging, verses 49 through 50. So, having told the parable, he says, thus will it be at the consummation of the age. The angels will come and will separate the wicked out from, of the midst of the righteous, and they will throw them into the furnace of fire. There, there will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. So, compare this to the wheat and the darnel again. I did it. Darnel. The wheat and the darnel. In verses 40 through 43. The tares are gathered up and burned with fire. And Jesus says that's the way it's going to be at the end of this age. Verse 41. The Son of Man will send forth His angels, and they will gather out of His kingdom all stumbling blocks and those who commit lawlessness, and will throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Exactly the same words as verse 50. Exactly the same words. But when Jesus repeats Himself, you best uh, lay it to heart that this is something He sees as very important. Exactly the same word. These are, that is the destiny of the wicked. But the righteous, verse 43, will shine forth as the sun. He doesn't talk about them in this parable. So twice Jesus speaks of eternal punishment. Now let's just stop there then. Jesus has told us we better stop there. He's done this by repeating himself. Now, actual Jesus said more about hell than anybody else. Do you hear me? Actual Jesus said more about hell than anyone else. So, uh, just as a, a very quick aside, when you have somebody say to you, I would hope that by now every one of you is prepared to respond. If, if someone says, well, you know, I, I, I love Jesus. I just don't love all this hellfire and damnation stuff. You should be ready to say, then you don't love Jesus. Or you love a Jesus you made up. That might as well be you know, Barney the Dinosaur, or Elmo, or Kermit the Frog, because they actually, you can see, this Jesus never lived. Actual Jesus said a great deal, very vividly, very clear and repeatedly about hell and damnation. And if anyone were to say to me, well, I really would rather you not talk about that, I would say, well, then I have got nothing to say because I'm here to preach Jesus to you. I'm here to preach actual Jesus to you. And this is, this is what he talked about. And he talked about repeatedly. He repeats it twice in, these, in this set of parables. Uh, and it's very, uh, it's very vivid the way he talks about it. Now, why does he do that? Well, you have people who say, um, talking about the threat of, of damnation and judgment, that's no good motivation for people to become Christians. You don't motivate them to become Christians by talking about God's judgment. And you know, my thought about that uh, is, I guess you think you know more about evangelism than Jesus does, right? Because he did. Right from the very start. Repent, for the kingdom of heavens is at hand. 
And he talked about the coming judgment of God. And he talked about it frequently and again and again. Now, I will certainly say it's not sufficient. Talking about damnation and hell is not preaching the gospel. If that's all you talk about, that's not preaching the gospel. But that is one very good reason to take Jesus very seriously. I just remarked to somebody in conversation the other day that it's the most surprising thing that that. The one thing we all know is going to happen to us with absolute certainty is the one thing we make no preparation for, and that is our death. Uh, uh, EMTs see people die, and they don't say, you know, I knew this was coming for the last several weeks, as a rule. Um, It's surprising that people just are surprised when they die. And Jesus talks about it frequently, that we should think about that, because there's a whole lot more time on the other side of the grave than there is on on this side. Now, let me say something to you very plain. I have absolutely no idea whatsoever what happens to a person one second after he dies, except what I've read in Scripture. And you're the same. None of us knows anything about this. And yet we live in a society where people have all these gauzy, comforting ideas and that they're sure is true about what happens when somebody dies. And old, old Bob's up there jamming with uh, Jimi Hendrix and Terry Kath and they're having a great party. And oh, How do you know that? On what authority do you know that? See, I've got the Word of God who knows all. I've got the Word of Jesus who is the resurrection and the life, who actually died and came back to life, from them I know things about what happens, and it's not what you're saying. And it's all we know, and what Jesus wants us to know, that if a person dies not right with God, then he goes to the judgment of God, and he is ultimately cast into this uh, furnace of fire where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. And that's, that is the fate of every man, woman, and child who doesn't come to peace with God through Jesus Christ. There, there are just two options, and these are the options. And while we say that, that somebody dies and goes to hell, a person doesn't die and go to hell straight. He goes to punishment, but hell is the lake of fire that comes after the, great, after the millennial kingdom. So ultimately, he ends up in, in hell. But he already begins with punishment and misery. And it's meant to motivate us to take very seriously the character and the judgment of God and the gospel of God, which is the one way, the only way, and the sure way to escape that fate, that eternity. Uh, And notice, too, that this is a kind of separating. They separate the fish, and so people will be separated. And and people say sometimes, well, hell is separation from God. Mm, Not really. The presence of God is what makes hell, hell. The presence of the righteous, holy, wrathful God is what makes hell, hell. What hell is the separation from, it's the separation from all of God's common gifts of grace that every person enjoys for his entire life here. Every breath we draw, every pleasant smell, every pleasant taste, the ability to put two thoughts together in sequence, the laws of nature, all the things that we have that we take for granted are all just temporary loans of God's grace to his enemies. But come hell, all that is taken away. Because the whole point of that was a time for them to repent, to get a witness to God. And if they're going to repent, that's when they need to do it. And if they don't, 
All that, they are separated from all of the graces and the kindnesses of God, and they simply experience the direct wrath and the fury of God. And that's what Jesus depicts here, does he not? Notice how he says, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. What do you suppose that means, that weeping and gnashing of teeth? It, it, it's a sign of great pain. It's a sign of deep regret. It's a sign of ongoing fury. These are not tears of repentance. These are tears of loss, of self-pity, of anguish. And I dare say they'll look back at having sat in a sermon like this and listened and done nothing with what they heard and see how things could have been different had they repented and that they never will be different now. Tears and gnashing of teeth. And, and just a, an additional thought, there are, of course, people who, I don't think anybody finds the doctrine of hell pleasant. I, I think there's probably something wrong if you find it pleasant and delightful and happy. It's very sober, it's very true, and it's the justice of God. Some people say, well, why would they be punished forever? Uh, for their sin. Well, two things. One is because of the gravity of, of the sin, that the worst sin you can commit in the universe is sin against God. You know, oh, I thought you were going to say sin against little innocent children. Oh, no, that's appalling and awful, but sin against God is worse. Why? Because He is the King of the universe. He is the greatest worth. You know, you wouldn't say accidentally stepping on an ant is on a level with killing a baby. Why? Because a baby is higher in worth than an ant. Who's higher in worth than a baby? Who's higher in worth than all created things? God. So first of all, the gravity of the sin. But also remember, they don't stop sinning because they're dead. They sin forever. They, they hate God. They reject God. They, they groan against God through all eternity. And so the punishment is just in at least two different ways. This is what Jesus talks about, the parting and the judging. This is the end of the person who, you might think it's so innocent, just sits through a sermon like last week or this week, hears about Jesus, and does nothing, absolutely nothing. And that is the thing. To find no worth in Jesus, to see, not to see Jesus as God sees Him, the preciousness of Jesus, the majesty of Jesus, Ah, that means this is the kind of person we're looking at. So we have seen the parable and somewhat talked about it. Now let's hear the parable. Roman numeral two, hearing the parable. Just focus on a couple of aspects. First is Jesus' use of the word consummation. Verse 49a, thus it will be at the consummation of the age. And first, I'd like to look with you at the fact of his using that word, that word consummation. I think end is a bit too weak of a translation for this Greek word suntelea. The word suntelea has the picture of a very deliberate process that is brought to a completion, that all of this is done to reach this end, and he's focusing at the end. But it's not just an end, as if somebody were to begin a sentence and then just end it in the middle of the sentence. <laughs> no, it's coming to the end of the sentence. It's coming to the end of the process. It's achieving the goal that was meant by all this. So you can't speak of a consummation unless there's a plan. And that's exactly what we're learning here. There is a plan. 
The word uh, suntelia is used six times in the New Testament, and Matthew has five of those six uses, and every one of the uses in the New Testament is with the word age. So they're all looking at this period of time as having a, a deliberate and a set and an intentional conclusion to it, that it's all coming to culmination at that point. So that teaches us that the age we're in, although it may look random, it may look haphazard, it may look like everything's utterly out of control. No, no indeed. It's all exactly on control. It's exactly on time. It's exactly on course. This age has a consummation, and everything that's happening right now is taking us towards that consummation, that goal. So that's very significant. Uh, It's used in both these parables, by the way, both the Darnell parable, it's the consummation of the age, he says twice, and in this parable, it's the consummation of the age. So the consummation of the age corresponds to what in the parable itself? The dragnet. Pulling the dragnet up on shore, that's the consummation of the age. Now, you may say, That seems very obvious. I'm not sure why you made us take the time to hear you say that. Well, the reason is because you'd be surprised how many commentators think the dragnet is the church. And that the point of this parable is to show that churches have good and bad people in them. They have saved and lost people in them. And I can't tell you how many good commentators I read talking about the the preaching of the gospel or the church itself being the dragnet. But look at the parable and look at the context. It's not the church. It's not the church for a number of reasons. For one thing, Jesus hasn't introduced the church yet. The church doesn't exist. It doesn't exist until Pentecost. And Jesus doesn't even say anything about the church until when? Anybody know what chapter he first mentions it? No? 16. 16 is the first time he mentions the church in the Gospel of Matthew. So we're a few chapters before that. He's not talking about the church. And the mystery stage of the kingdom is not the church age. It starts before the church and it ends after the church. It starts in the ministry of Jesus, whereas the church starts when? Pentecost. And it ends at the end of the tribulation period and the church is caught up to Christ to be with him in the air before the tribulation period falls. So this mystery period starts before the church. It ends after the church. The dragnet is not the church. The dragnet speaks of the gathering of all people for judgment and how the angels separate the righteous from the unrighteous. It's the harvest in the Darnell parable. It's the end of the age in both parables. So, I'll make sure, did I talk about both things? Talked about the fact, been talking about the significance. Now let's talk about the program. What is the program that is hinted at by this consummation of the age? Well, all through the age, Christ is preached and people respond. That's the program. We've seen that from the parable of the sower on. The word is sown on all kinds of soil, and everybody responds in some way. And in the context of these three parables, how do they respond? Either they find Christ to be all worthy, or they show that they are worthless. They either see the preciousness of Jesus, or they show their own unworthiness by turning away from him, unmoved and untouched by the sight of this precious treasure. But Jesus will remain with us through this age's program as we preach the word. Let me show you the last use of the word in the Gospel of Matthew. Turn to the last chapter. 
And please point your eyes at the last words in the book. Because here Jesus has spoken of the church and has his leaders, his founders of the church, the apostles. He is risen from the grave. He meets with these apostles. And he says in Matthew 28, 18, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to keep all that I commanded you, and behold, I am with you always, even to thee, and there's the word, end, the consummation, the suntelia of the age. All through this age, through this mystery period, Jesus is with his people. And as we go preaching Jesus and telling people of Jesus, and pointing Jesus, pointing people to Jesus, sowing the Word of God, Jesus is with us right through to the consummation of the age and obviously beyond. And at the end of this age comes judgment. Comes the judgment that he's told us about twice now in the parables in this set. And they all center around how we respond to him, preached and real. The Word and the Word, capital W and small w. The living Word is Jesus Christ, and we hear of Him through the Word of God, which is the Gospel, which is the Bible. And the irony is that the preaching of the Gospel shows us the worth of Christ, and when we turn from it, we simply reveal our own worthlessness. That we're created in God's image, and yet we, we defile, we pervert We're created to serve God, to know God, to cling to God, and we pervert everything we are by turning to ourselves from God and trying to find meaning within instead of in Him. And that simply shows, like Romans 3 says, they've all turned aside, together they've become worthless. Different word, but the same idea. That's the great irony here. The judgment says nothing about Jesus. He is who He is. The judgment reveals who we are by what we've done with Jesus. Now, letter B, let's talk about the separation we see in verses 49 and 50. The angels will come and will separate the wicked out of the midst of the righteous, and they will throw them into the furnace of fire. There, there will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. So first we've got the good. What defines the good? What is meant by the good? Let's define them in terms of this chapter. What does this chapter show uh, to tell us who uh, Jesus would be thinking of. Well, in terms of the first parable, the parable of the sower, who are the good? They're those who hear the word of God and comprehend it and bear fruit. The fourth soil. That's who he's talking about. Or they're those who are leavened or who nest under the branches of the kingdom in the parable of the uh, mustard seed and of the leaven. That's the first set of three and the opening parable. They're the son's of God, the the wheat who were sown in the parable of the wheat and the darnel. Or in the context of of these, there are those who have seen the preciousness and the worth of Jesus and have happily, gladly parted with everything they had so they could have Jesus. That's who the righteous are. That's who the good are. They're right with God because they've come to God through Christ. They've heard the word of God and they've repented and they've come to know Jesus as their Savior and Lord. In the context of Matthew's gospel, who are they? The larger gospel. Well, what's Jesus' first sermon? What's John the Baptist's first sermon? What's the first word they say in Matthew? Repent. So who are the righteous? Are they people who are good people? Well, no, they started off by repenting. And by repenting, they've shown that they they start off knowing they're sinners. They're wicked. They've got no excuse. 
So they turn from their sin and their, their self-seeking to submit to the lordship and the salvation of God. And they become poor in spirit and pure of heart and merciful and all the things Jesus paints in the Sermon on the Mount, you see. So faith has come by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And through faith, they've been counted righteous. That's who the righteous are. And this parable doesn't talk about their, their destiny, but it talks about their nature. So, having laid that down then one more time, who are the wicked? Well, think in terms of this chapter, who are they? Think of the first parable of the sower. The wicked are those who hear the word of God, but immediately let it go, like the first soil. Or they let it go when things get rough. Or they let it go because they really care about the other things in their life more than they do about God. That's the first parable. Are there those untouched by the, the leavening uh, of, the, of the gospel of God? Or they're the darnel planted by the wicked? Or they're those who see no value in Jesus Christ, but they walk on past the treasure. They walk on past the priceless pearl. That's who Jesus is talking about. And each one of them in this context, they've heard Christ preach, just like you're doing right now. They've heard the word of God, just like you are right now. And I've seen nothing in it for them. I hope not like you right now. They've turned away, gone back to their own life. And so what happens to them? They're separated. The angels are sent out and they separate. He, they separate these people. Jesus talks about this in Matthew 25. He talks about this very uh, instance. And this is before the setting up of the millennial kingdom and after the tribulation period. Jesus talks about uh, his coming and this judgment. Look at Matthew 25, verse 31. But when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Now, this is not a parable. This is straight up what is going to happen. And all the nations will be gathered before him. Like what? Like a dragnet bringing all kinds of fish up. That's what we're talking about right here. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate them from one another as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats, and he will put the sheep on his right and the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, come you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom which has been prepared for you from the foundation of the world. This is the righteous in, in Matthew 13, 43, who will shine forth in the kingdom of their father. And then in verse 41, he says to those on the left, depart from me, accursed one, into the eternal fire, which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. So you see, just like in Matthew uh, 13, just as in the parable of the dragnet, the king sits on his throne, the angels bring the people before him, and he parts them. He separates them to everlasting life or everlasting fire and punishment, Jesus says. So that's what happens to those who see no worth in Jesus. They're left to their own worthlessness and to wallow in it through all eternity under the wrath of God. So uh, Jesus makes this very clear. This is what happens to them. And what is it that haunts them? What will haunt them? What will haunt them? Regret. They will gnash their teeth. They'll weep. They'll think of what they did with their life. They will know the justice of God's judgment and have nothing they can do about it now. And we'll see they had a life of opportunity after opportunity after opportunity with which they did nothing. And now they justly are under the wrath of God 
And after they've been under that wrath for a million years, there's no less time left under that wrath. They don't stop sinning. They don't stop being punished. So there's the message, the very sobering message of this parable, uh, that Jesus is worthy. And if we don't see His worth, that reveals our unworthiness and marks us for judgment. So the sermon was titled, One Fish, Two Fish, and every child of Dr. Seuss thinks, Red Fish, Blue Fish. But I might say in the context of this parable, One Fish, Two Fish, Dead Fish, New Fish. Because the Bible says the wages of sin is death. Not in the sense of not existing anymore, but of being deprived of everything that life means and being under the wrath of God. The wages of sin is death, and we are all dead in trespasses and sins. But the gift of God, the free gift of God, is eternal life in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ alone can forgive all our sins. He alone can give us life. He alone can make us new people. And what did Jesus say? You'll never enter or see the kingdom of God unless you are born again. We need to become new men and women. Not men and women who promise to try to do better, but men and women who repent and look to Christ alone for life and forgiveness. And thus we are new people in Christ. And so the all-worthy Jesus came that He might save sinners, to give life to the dead, and to make new men and women of us so that we have one fish, two fish, dead fish, new fish. So, friend, right now, just as the people in this chapter, your ears have heard the Word of God. I know that for a fact. My question is, what is your heart doing with the Word of God? Is your heart overwhelmed at the greatness of Christ and the wonderfulness of God's gift in Christ and, and what He is and how precious He is to you? Or do you just see nothing there? Well, it's my sober task to tell you if you see nothing there, that's a very troubling thing about you. Because, and I can certainly say with all my heart, I, I can think vividly of the first part of my life where I saw nothing there either. I saw nothing there, nothing I wanted, nothing I wanted any part of. No, thank you. I don't need anybody. I've got everything in myself, I thought, till the Holy Spirit ended that illusion and that charade and ripped the scales off my eyes, and I saw just how much I needed Jesus and came running to Him. Is that happening with you right now? Because Jesus said that does happen while His Word is preached. John 5.25, Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. Have you heard? Will you live? Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this powerful word of your powerful Son, how it cuts through our illusions and our false thinking and the lies of our age. Thank you for the worth and the majesty of Jesus Christ. Thank you that in Him and in Him alone, in His blood and righteousness, we can have beauty and acceptance before you and assurance in your judgment. For we all stand before you. We'll all stand before the throne of God. But will we stand in Christ, the worthy one, in His blood and righteousness, or will we stand in our own sin? Father, my prayer is for everyone here that each will see his great need of Christ. And if he's not come to Him, that he will drop everything and come running to Jesus, who alone can give life. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.